You're listening to The Hour with Resident Advisor. The Hour! This, this, this is this, The this, Hour. This, this, You're listening to The Hour. This is The Hour. With Resident Advisor. Hello and welcome to The Hour. This is RA's blend of documentaries, discussion, interviews and lots of other things besides. My name's Ryan Keeling and I'm the editor at Resident Advisor. Coming up on this month's show, what makes a great sound system? That's the question that Rich Cuffley from Sound Services, one of London's leading sound hire companies, will be answering as he takes us on a tour of one of his latest club installations. And the author Matthew Collin will be telling us about Ray Vaughan, his new book that looks at the rapid development of global dance music culture. But first, we released a feature at the end of last year that talked about the phenomenon of wellness and clean living in dance music. Whether you think this is an overdue development in the hedonistic world of dance music, or if you think it's a ridiculous collision of two seemingly opposing ideals, it feels obvious that an increasing number of us these days are thinking about our mental well-being. As we just reached the end of January, and many of us are still in the New Year's resolutions mindset, we thought it'd be interesting to ask a small group of electronic music artists how they look after their mental health. First up, here's the Berlin-based techno artist Rebecca. I started doing CrossFit about, I don't know, two and a half years ago. And it was, it came because I was doing a lot of cardio and I don't know, I just, I mean, I love the cardio, but I just didn't see any change in my body. So I was doing all this working out, like hours every week, and then I got smaller, but I didn't really get stronger. So I got recommended to do CrossFit, and it was just really tough, you know, like it's, um, it has this kind of intensity that I really enjoy. It just was really challenging, and, and what I discovered pretty quickly was that you go and do a class of, of CrossFit, and then for that whole hour or so, you're just not thinking about anything else. And I really started to do CrossFit when like CLR was breaking down and I just found CrossFit and it just helped me because I just, it, it got me out of my mind and all this worry and this kind of nervous energy that I had based around my career. And it just helped me remove myself do you think as well that it's important to be considering your mental health when you're someone who's kind of more in the in the public eye? When we're talking about DJs and dance music, we're not discussing like, you know, globally famous sports people or politicians or something like that. But do you think there's a kind of um, additional mental strain that comes with being in the public eye a little bit more? I just think that artists on the whole, like across the board, you know, not not even just music, are just completely sensitive, you know. Um, it kind of goes with the territory, you know, you're a creative person and that means that you're a lot more sensitive to to different stimuli, I suppose, and, and, you know, that form of wanting to express something comes from that, having that sort of sensitivity. And that also can work the other way because, you know, you put a little bit of yourself out there into the world and you're hoping that it's going to be well received. And obviously now we live in this age, this social media age, where it's really easy to write hateful comments all the time. So it's kind of the balance of like filtering out all of this sort of negativity all the time. So I think it is really important to to have something that you can kind of help strengthen your mind or 
you know, take you away from this kind of obsessive behavior that we all have around social media as well. And for me, as an artist, I suppose it does, you know, the, the things that I do, whether it is yoga or CrossFit or, you know, some meditation, it just helps my state of being. Here's Lucy, the Italian artist behind the stroboscopic artifacts label. For me, um, mental well-being has been uh, crucially important because I've um, I've been in the last, let's say, 10 to 12 years, which is pretty much where my music career started, quite unstable at points. It's a tricky balance because there are certain things that I do uh, to allow myself a certain um, a certain level of uh, inner harmony and, uh, and balance with myself, like for example yoga practice um, and uh, mainly meditation. Um, but at the same time, let's say I can't go uh, too deep in it because um, Every time I go uh, too extreme with my practice and I start practicing like really every day and meditating and things like, I reach a certain state of um, kind of suspension and that state is actually not a very creative space, you know, so I always have to be careful in, to, um, in let's say, calming the demons inside me, but not too much because those demons are also the the root of all my creativity in music. Is this a um, process of discovery that you've undertaken over the last few years? or um, I've been uh, practicing yoga since, yeah, I would say 10 years, something like this, um, and started to dive deeper into the more meditative side of those practices uh, since, uh, yeah, five or six years. And at some point that matured into this uh, uh, sound bath meditation classes that I uh, lead in Berlin weekly um, that are for me kind of a reset point every single week for me that is uh, something very important to do to kind of find again some kind of uh, um, rooting, you know, some um, connection to the ground, let's say. Because, you know, with our job you're constantly... Like being a performer, you're constantly in front of uh, big crowds, uh, constantly, let's say, at the center of attention, like your ego can be uh, can can be easily pumped. I am public person, but I am very private as well. Peggy Gu, the Korean artist who's currently based in Berlin. I like to have my own space, but on the weekend, you cannot have that. You have to socialize. And sometimes it can take a lot of energies. When you tour alone, when you travel alone, it affects you emotionally. Some people just think, oh, DJ is the easiest job. They just go there and play a few hours and they get the money. But they don't understand that it's not just what you see on the DJ booth. But I decide to be like this. So, of course, there are things that I have to take care of and, uh, and there are things that I have to swallow and there are things that I have to go through. I decide to be a public person. I think taking care of yourself is very important because sometimes when you tour quite a lot, like I was touring quite a lot last year and I was very tired physically and mentally. And to be okay, I started to eat very healthy. I think eating healthy is super important for me um, because when you're traveling, it's very easy to not eat regularly. Or, you know, when you go to different country, you might not have your favorite dishes or something that you always take. 
for example, for me, like having organic juice is a very important, like shot, turmeric shot, ginger shot. I used to run 10Ks every day. I used to be crazy with exercise. But then after touring, working, I didn't have time. And I realized that not working out affects me mentally and physically, both. And especially when you're a DJ, you go somewhere on the weekend and it's so easy to get drunk or, or wasted. And when you wake up the next day, you know, it, the, the hangover is like one of the hor most horrible feeling too. Sometimes I play on Friday and I ended up drinking a lot. And the next day I have a hangover, then it's not the same energy that I should have when you go when I go to different places on Saturday, the next day. So I, this year I'm trying not to um, even smoke and I don't I try not to drink a lot. And I also have my own meditation as well. Once I come back from the gig, I try to have this moment where I have silence and just think. Elsewhere in Berlin, we're back with Lucy to hear more about the sound bath meditation classes he hosts each week. So this um, the, the this um, sound bath meditation classes I was talking about, it's something that um, I started in Berlin some uh, two and a half years ago, uh, where, I, uh, where I kind of uh, started to share to a public certain practices that I was experimenting with personally or with a very close circuit of friends. And um, it's pretty much like what I what I try to do is to put together those things that are um, that I find really in common ground between uh, making music and being in the music world constantly and uh, being interested also in uh, uh, those more um, meditative practices. Um, so I um, I kind of put together different techniques from both worlds and um, and started this concept of um, sound bath meditation, um, which is um, um, right now happens weekly um, in a in a yoga school in Berlin, um, and it's nice because uh, it's in the evening, which is normally my uh, my right time let's say for uh, certain kind of feelings coming in you know a certain kind of energy that start to flow in me happens i've always been a night person let's say um and um, i normally mix certain techniques from uh, like pranayama which are like some uh, deep breathing techniques where i um, that helps the public to get in tune into a certain to, to a certain mind state, and then the actual samba starts where I where I play with uh, these gongs, which are very 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 interesting instruments to me, and that are um, actually hidden but very present in a lot of my productions. Each and every gong makes your body vibrate in a in a certain way that cannot be repeated, and that kind of uh, physical micro vibration—it's like a micro massage—is a bit what happened um, in a club as well. You know, that's why we're. I, I do think we're all very addicted to bass for real because uh, because of a physical, even biological reason as well. You know, like things inside our body start vibrating. Our body is made out of uh, water mainly, you know. So when uh, when we are trespassed by these base frequencies, this uh, this water start to um, engage into a tiny vibration, and when this vibration is um, amplified in the whole body, it becomes like a 
a very, very special state, you know, that I can uh, connect quite well um, in between the two different experiences, like a meditation session or um, a moment in a club where you really feel you are somewhere else. And I'm not just talking about uh, uh, using of uh, uh, drugs, uh, but uh, for the music itself, you know what I mean? Um, I, I'm sure a lot of uh, um, the people that listen to this uh, to this podcast right now experience uh, at least sometimes in their life to go in a club completely sober without taking anything and uh, still if it's the right place with the right sound, with the right sound system and the right amount of time passed um, to still feel kind of high in a way you know that's when uh, energy starts to move because of these vibrations you know it's really a energetical emotional psychological and here's jim coles the bristol-based artist better known as omunit from the perspective of being an artist i think that mental health is part and parcel of looking after yourself um especially if you're doing your creative work full-time you have a lot of responsibility to just maintain your energy levels and kind of your time really and mental health really is something that I think a lot of creative people maybe struggle with or it's definitely for a lot of people becoming um, more of an open issue and less of a taboo so I think that it's good to kind of share information about this and my word on it is that ultimately I respect the work of Terence McKenna. One of the things he said in one of his uh, lectures was playing out the internal weather. And the idea of this internal weather that's happening, we all have it, all human beings have it. And I think it's very necessary as creative people to, yeah, to just to stay in touch with it. And um, you can learn new ways of expressing yourself creatively from exploring your, your kind of inner world. And I find that that's the best kind of way of maintaining mental health, really. And with that comes physical. You know, the mind and the body are part of the same thing. They are really the same thing, in my opinion. So everything you think has an effect on your body at a cellular level. It's all hand in hand. So I do think exercise and just making sure, because a lot of what we do is sedentary as well. So I feel like you have to balance that with, with movement, diet as well. The whole picture, you know, just learning how to be a real person in, in the creative world is key, but also can be a struggle. That's kind of my whole picture on it. Is there a, a particular um, practice that you subscribe to? Or, uh, you know, do you use any form of like reflection or sort of mindfulness techniques or, or anything mm. along those lines? <laughs> in terms of techniques and specific approaches, I would say uh, for, for me, I think over the years, I've just read a lot. Um, and more than the practice of reading, which is just good for your brain, um, I've just read a lot of, I guess what you would call new age or self-help. Some things I've taken with me, some things I've left behind, but like uh, really the work of certain authors has just helped to kind of expand my worldview and kind of ask questions internally. Um, I connect a lot with Buddhism, but I wouldn't call myself a Buddhist. Um, I think that there's something to be learned from every ancient tradition and I feel that it's just amazing that we have all these resources to, to be curious about and, and so that would be my thing I think is probably reading and reflecting and trying to experience 
in the real world, you know, and not so conceptually. But I would also recommend meditation. I've definitely meditated quite a bit in the past and found that very beneficial. Learning how to breathe is really key. Yoga. I do yoga every morning and that kind of helps me just kind of get my body kind of ready for the day, you know. And this, But there's so much out there. Everybody has their own kind of thing they connect with. So I'd say just be curious and, and try stuff would be my advice. Cuffley here at RA for a good few years now. He helped install our sound system in our office. He's worked with us on RA sessions and he's been a guiding hand down the years for London promoters who want to install a great sound system at their party. Rich's enthusiasm for all things sound is pretty legendary. So when he told us about a new sound system installation he'd completed at the new E1 venue in Wapping, we asked if he'd mind showing us his new creation. Well, RA contributor Stephen Titmus picked his brains about what makes a killer sound system. We're in Wapping. It's a grey, blustery day in London. Uh, to the right of me is the A1203. That's one of the main arteries into London. A very busy, chugging road. And we're going to go to E1 London, which is a brand new club. It supposedly has a fantastic system, and we're going to go and meet the man behind that, Rich Cuffley, who's a sound engineer with a great deal of expertise in the field. So through here, this is the smaller of the two rooms. This is the black studio. You can tell it's the black studio because everything in here is black. The walls, the ceiling, the system. So Rich, um, why has the sound system got plastic wrapping all over it at the moment? Uh, it's to protect it. Currently, they're, um, the project's ongoing and at the moment they're doing a huge part of it which is improving the toilet facilities. Um, so just outside this door is pretty much a building site and I think everyone was shocked how much dust was created so I instantly came in and panicked and said we need to cover everything. Obviously the delicate components of loudspeakers and stuff, dust won't do it any good, so we're just taking precautions for that. What's the kind of delicate stuff that would be in one of those things? Um, I mean, on the uh, Evo 6s, which are flown, you've got kind of diaphragms and the usual loudspeaker stuff, which a little bit of dust in there really wouldn't help, so we're just wrapping them to keep all of that out from the beginning. I mean, the the 215s and stuff there, they're not really going to come to any harm, but you know the kind of tweeters and the ten inches there—it's—it's it's really not good for them to be covered in dust. We used the space and the room for temporary events for a good five years, so we used to have the DJ on this side um, when we brought uh, a rig in 
and it kind of suited flow of people, etc. So when we went for the permanent install, we thought a lot about the room and how it laid out and if we could improve what we were doing before. With the DJ over there on a temporary setup, it never felt like um, there was really a home or somewhere comfortable for the DJs to work. It was quite temporary and kind of came into the dance floor. So when we had the opportunity to build a proper console and DJ booth, we, we jumped at it. There was a cupboard at the back which we knocked into, which claimed a little bit more room and gave us a bit more dance floor area. So I guess it's worth saying that before you guys stepped in, this was a place that had temporary sound systems and what you've changed is to put a permanent club install in here. Exactly that. I mean, we were lucky enough, we did all of the one-off gigs in here. So um, we were doing it to a really high standard with temporary stuff, but this just allowed us to take it to the kind of next degree of, um, of sound quality and usability, really. So what we're looking at, we've got a bunch of speakers here. They all look big and exciting and powerful, but, but are they, Rich? <laughs> yes, what you're looking at is, um, this was a huge design feature and this was what started the project. A sketch of this and this design was um, what kind of propelled the project forward. And it's based on uh, the premise of using all the bass in one area um, a mono block, it tends to be called. So the, the thought behind that is by putting the bass in one position, it doesn't have arguments with other bass bins in here. So if you put a bass bin under each top for the, floor, for the four point, when that bass meets in the middle, there'll be um, areas where there's no bass and it's canceled out. So what you usually see in most raves is four speakers in the corner with bass blocks underneath the speakers, exactly. but what we've got here is a massive load of bass speakers surrounded in concrete, it looks like. Oh, yes, my bunker. Um, <laughs> they have, I mean, this is quite an engineering feat. They've, from a, a sketch that was a dream from me to actually make this happen is quite, a, as I say, an engineering feat. It's made of concrete. It's precisely the dimensions of the four double 21s and the 32. And the other advantage is this also doubles up as the, DJ work surface, so it's only taking half as much floor space as having a DJ setup and bass bin. So it's trying to get more um, floor space out of the room, but acoustically it works really well. The premise is by building this with concrete, it cannot vibrate. So all of the bass and energy that's created by these bass bins can only go one way, and that's out onto the dance floor. So it makes it even more efficient. So this is going to be quite a crude question, but how much does something like this cost? We're talking about <laughs> encasing stuff in concrete. There's function ones everywhere. Like, yeah, you know, that's got to it's, set you back a pretty penny. Yeah, it's certainly not a cheap project to start. The, the first problem we had was making a span of concrete that big that didn't have any downward support. Um, luckily, the owners had contacts with guys who are concrete specialists and... Uh, this was created by someone who builds uh, skyscrapers for a living. So their know-how enabled us to, to build something that on paper looked pretty much impossible, really. The owners were, their prime motivation was getting the sound amazing, which is really, really rare these days. So totally grateful that they, you know, listened to all recommendations and built the bunker. <laughs> so I guess you've got totally high-end speakers, 
but have you done more other stuff to the room have you done stuff to treat the room yeah yeah huge difference um all of the systems we deploy are a great standard and even more for me recently the quality of the room and the acoustic of the room is a huge factor and doing this has made me realize even more that the room is so important so before we started an acoustic consultant was brought in we used sean Merkit consultants um and he recommended two steps to make it sound better in here and that consists of the hanging tiles you see in the ceiling which takes care of high frequency and mid-range we've also supplemented those boards by rock walling on top of them which helps at slightly lower frequencies um, but because the base is so um, you could say outrageous, but because there's loads of bass in it, it's really important to tame those frequencies as well. So if you look at the back wall where the bar is, this is all custom built bass traps. So this controls low frequency. It comes out of here. Um, when it hits that wall, it's dissipated, so it doesn't bounce back and give us any cancellation. So yeah, on two parts, they've gone a lot further than most venues would to make it sound good. And from someone who's not an expert, you know, you look into this room, the exciting bits of the speakers, mm. you're probably not excited by those bits of felt, but I am. how, <laughs> I was gonna say, how, how big of a difference do they make if you didn't have them? Huge, absolutely huge. It's, um, as I said, it's been, I, I know that it makes a difference, but by using this space with no treatment, some treatment, and now where we are now, it's so clear to me the difference that the room acoustic makes and um, your system's only going to be as good as the room really which a lot of people neglect when they're doing clubs we're walking up some concrete steps above the huge array of bass bins and now we're in where the dj would play and in front of me is even more concrete yeah the back of the bunker and um, with the premise of using the same footprint for uh, the bass and the DJ, it lends itself really well. It gives us more than 16 foot of DJ console, um, which enables us to run two setups. So when we're changing between people's riders, while one person's playing, we can prepare, set up and get ready with the next set. The DJ can step up, load memory keys if it's a pa or something they can start to get themselves ready um so it just makes changeovers a lot smoother really and i'm seeing a whole host of what looks like amplifiers and graphic equalizers over there yeah um, we've got the main amp rack um little design feature that um we wanted to include and the owners were um uh, keen to do as well is to have the amp rack showing um into the dj booth the the area by the amp rack is where the engineer works, so there would be a desk, etc., there. But it gives us a really good visual indication that the system's running, you know, within safe parameters and everything's okay. Plus, when you've spent so much money on the best quality amps and processing, um, there's no harm in showing the artists, the managers, everyone else, you know, the quality of the equipment we're using. So um, it also helps keep it cool as well. Like what would happen if you used a, like a less good amp with like a functional one sound system? Well, it's only ever gonna be as good as the weakest link. So, um, you know, if the cabling's not up to standard, if the amplifiers aren't up to standard, if the processing isn't up to standard, then the system simply isn't as good as it could be. So if you made a huge investment in a system 
this good, then you need to maintain that quality all the way down the line to the amplifiers. Um, it's a it's a huge investment, but again, if you're going to do something, it's worth doing it really properly. It's very dynamically run so at the beginning of a night when there's not many people in um, it'll obviously run at a much lower volume there's always in both rooms one of our engineers who is really well qualified and knows the system inside out and they will constantly assess what volume it should be at so we would be thinking primarily that it's comfortable for someone on the dance floor um, we also want to reserve some headroom for that big headliner so that there's impact when they start. Um, any engineer that's working here will spend a majority of their time on the dance floor where the customers are ensuring that everything sounds tip top and it's the right level. So that's, you know, as well as changing over the artists and stuff, that's a really big responsibility for the engineer that's in that room and something that um, you know, people don't always value, but again, like the components, it's only as good as the guy that's running it, tuning it and using it on that night. So we're aiming for all of those things to be, you know, as good as they can possibly be. We're really lucky. We've got a great team of engineers who are really, really skilled. So what are the things that can let a sound system down then, even if you've got all the fantastic equipment? Well, from sort of starting at the beginning, it would be quality of music files. Um, more than ever, these function systems are so precise that um, they're not forgiving to bad program material, MP3s, you know, you might not hear the difference between an MP3 and a WAV file on some earbuds or something, but this is like a microscope and any flaws or bad bit rates, you know, it will be really obvious. It will lose energy, excitement and simply won't sound as good. Um, Mixer usage, if the mix is in the red and it's clipping and it's distorted, that will be amplified and come out of the loudspeakers and make it unpleasant to listen to. So really, at every stage, it's very easy to ruin the quality of the sound. That's just the material that's being played and the DJ mixer. So everything after that, you need to give the same consideration. So DJs, no redlining, yes. no MP3s? No, <laughs> as ever. I mean, we normally, you know, when you book a night, an artist and stuff, you book the artist, pay the artist fee, receive their rider, give them what they want. But we try and be a bit more proactive here and we're sending out information about the system for people that are interested or excited by that and just stressing that, you know, this is the place where sound quality is everything. We're reproducing low end that uh, sometimes can't be heard on other lesser systems. So we try and get the artists as excited as we are. So it's like if you've got music that's got low info on it, this is the place to showcase it and play it. So hopefully, you know, everyone wants an amazing sounding room with some magic in there. So we've tried to do everything our end with the install and the engineering so if the if the djs and artists can sort of give the same commitment then all of the components are there to make something really special you know for you personally 
was this kind of a dream come true, being able to do a full club install? Yeah, of course. It's, it's so rare for someone to understand the equipment that's required and, you know, buy it. But also to treat the rooms and go to these lengths is pretty, it's, it's unprecedented really. The last sort of piece to the puzzle is the toilets and stuff. The last problem that we had, um, New Year's Eve and before that, is there just weren't enough toilets. So to give people an amazing sound experience, amazing DJs in an amazing space, and then for people to not be happy about waiting for a toilet, which is fair enough, you know, this is gonna make it come together and give us all the facilities we need. I mean, they used to get extra removable toilets outside, but you know, when it's cold, it's not very pleasant to go outside. So they used to do everything they could, but I think the commitment to building that just shows how serious they are about making somewhere really special. Every time I go out that way, I sort of tuck to myself because there's three sets of double doors. Then I remember why there's got to be three sets of double doors uh, to stop noise leaking and uh, yeah. shut up. <laughs> So we're in the smaller room now. There's a much bigger room on the other side of this wall. Yeah. What's the difference between the two rooms? They're both designed on the same premise. It's a four-point system. Um, the smaller room is eight metres between each speaker. The larger room is 12 metres between each speaker. So it's got a greater capacity. Um, it's called the warehouse. So it's much more of a big room warehousey vibe, whereas the black studio we're in now is smaller more intimate um, you know I think there's pros and cons to both I really love this smaller room it sounds so hi-fi in here um, next door though New Year's Eve Ben clock in there was something else you know the scale of it and the size of the crowd you can fit in just works really well um, system wise it's pretty much double the base that we've got in the black studio so we've got a total of um, eight double 21s and then two BR32s. Um, the BR32s are a brand new product. It's a 32 inch base bin. Um, this is a substitute for, we used to use um, infra bass and infra horns similar to the bottom of the stacks at Berghain, those huge horns um, to reproduce really low frequencies. Technology's moved on and now we've got a uh, very small unit i mean okay it's a 32 inch driver but it's much smaller footprint and it's reproducing the same frequencies um it's probably giving us more level but the precision and the musicality of the new stuff is absolutely mind-blowing um it's it's really reproducing much lower frequencies and information that you know when we started um, using these with function we were all hearing and feeling things that we hadn't felt before so you know that's exciting and deploying it um, no one really knows the how to time and set up and cross over these things so it was a real journey of discovery to get them sounding right and integrating them with the rest of the systems um, it was great to start in the black studio with 132 and then when we moved into the warehouse and it doubled up, it can be quite breathtaking the volume you get. So we kind of, it had taught us a little bit about how the 32 works with the 21s and how to time it. So it was a huge advantage, but with again, mono 
there's monoblock base in the larger warehouse, um, which unusually is on the side of the dance floor, which most people when they walk in comment on. And um, a lot of people, you know, when you look at a system, normally it's facing you, so it seems kind of counterintuitive to put it onto the side of the room, but because it's low frequency um, and the sound it creates is more omnidirectional. It works really well on the side. And one benefit that we hadn't expected that worked really well is the, um, the bass on the side means the whole room feels connected, including the DJ. It's like everyone's in the same room and the same space experiencing the same sound um, and bass. So I, I think it integrates the DJ into the room a, a lot better and it works really well on a, on a bigger scale like that. And you've been in the game for a really long time, decades. How uh, <laughs> unusual is this level of investment? Have you seen it before? Um, probably only twice in the time that I've been doing it. Um, in the 90s, there was a huge um, competition between clubs and you know that's kind of when ministry and stuff um, were able and you know fabric opening that was a well-treated room so it's been a long time since someone has made an investment like this and um, realizes how important sound is is to a club so I just you know I, I really look forward to experimenting with it and hopefully um, seeing people realize the importance of it because it when it's neglected or I go to somewhere that doesn't sound great, it, it, it can upset me because I'm kind of all about sound. And um, if it's not great, people don't really notice it or react to it. And your brain's so clever, it'll mask it and everything else. So to put two rooms of incredible sound that's really well specced in a treated room, I think is a huge change and something that's been missing in London for a long time so yeah as ever super excited about it. The respected author Matthew Collin recently returned with a new book called Rave On. Collin has written several books about music including Altered State the story of ecstasy culture and acid house, which came out back in 1998. His new one turns its attention to the global phenomenon of dance music. Colin wanted to explore how dance music is evolving in different cultures across the world. He stopped by our London studio earlier this month and told Ray Philp about the creative journey behind Ray Vaughan. Uh, hello, Matthew. Hello. Great to be here with you today. Thank you so much. Um, you've written a book. It's called Rave On. How did the idea for the book uh, emerge? It was actually the idea of uh, my publisher who uh, published my um, um, book, Altered State, 20 years ago, which was about the kind of origins of acid house and the rave scene in Britain in the late 80s, early 90s. And she said, well, why don't you do a book about what's happened to it all now, how it's all become globalised and uh, how now um, this culture is, what was a subculture has become mass culture everywhere in the world. And I said, absolutely no way. That's, that's impossible. I, I can't do that. No one can do that. Because, you know, now everything is everywhere. I mean, if you want to hear 
uh, dubstep in Istanbul or uh, side trance in Vladivostok or footwork in Buenos Aires, you can. There'll be a there'll be a small kind of scene there. It would take you know the, an encyclopedia author to 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 um, put together a, a comprehensive guide to everything that's going on in electronic dance music around the world, and then it would have to be updated every other month because uh, it so i said it has, has absolutely no way i can't do this and no one can do it and then i got talked into it of course <laughs> of course and it seemed like it would be uh interesting to to um find out how this culture adapts uh, when it's when it's adopted in different places around the world you know is it just uh, adopted as as a complete import uh, a, a complete western european or, or us import and not changed or does it develop its own characteristics depending on on the uh, society and culture that it, that it grows up in that and that was i thought okay then maybe there is a possibility to do something but the idea of any kind of comprehensive guide to electronic dance music around the world these days impossible so as part of the method of sorting which places you would travel to in order to kind of form this book a question of selecting the places that shaped electronic music in the most interesting ways yes basically i mean when you're looking at the 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 influence some certain places have had on uh, the culture of electronic dance music, or some on the music, some on the culture. You cannot uh, kind of leave out places like Berlin or or Ibiza. So they they have to be dealt with, and there's there's lots of ideas and questions and history and and people that that you, you just can't gloss over in in any way. But then it's it's it was more a question of looking at what's interesting, what where is an interesting story that should be told, and says more than these DJs played at this rave in this place. That's 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 a listing. That's not a that that's not a book. Therefore, I chose a series of places that I thought uh, represented a series of different ideas and interpretations, and of course that I could afford to get to. <laughs> <laughs> Um, one of the things. Sorry, that, Sydney, Australia, <laughs> but I love you. <laughs> one of the things that struck me early on about this book is, um, is obviously you would have spent a lot of time at parties, um, and I guess you know you must have been inhabiting these places in in uh, as almost like in in two roles. You would have been on the one hand someone who, uh, like, you know, a reporter who was uh, just observing this stuff with an objective eye. And on the other hand, you were there as a participant who who may or may not have uh, enjoyed kind of like what was unfolding. Um, were you, was it easier or, or not to reconcile the sort of those two positions when you were at any given place? I've been a participant observer for so long that it's really hard not to think in, in any other way. You know, the advantage that I had, I guess, with this project is that I have got interviews going back quite a... I mean, the interviews in this book date back, some of them date back to 1988. I had the luxury of being able to draw on older older material and therefore build up a, build up a narrative in that way. What's interesting is that uh, now it's much easier to be a journalist in a club since the rise of the smartphone. Because before, if you were a journalist in a club and you're writing in a notebook, everyone's looking at you like you're a total weirdo. Like, what's that guy doing? Is he is he undercover? Yeah, he's an undercover. That guy over there. Watch him. 
Now you can you can tap away happily making notes uh, on your smartphone. No one gives takes a blind bit of notice. It's, that is that is something that's definitely improved for, for journalists covering the, covering this kind of culture. I mean, I was at this um, this illegal out uh, uh, rave in some of the wilds of southern southern France, and you know I was taking uh, taking notes by tapping away on my phone. If I'd been writing on a in a notebook. I'd have, I'd, have, I'd have got a kicking, seriously. But I, it was absolutely fine to tap away, tap away on my phone. When you were, um, you know, in the pre-smartphone era when you were reporting in these kinds of environments, like, what did you actually do? Uh, I think I had a better memory back then, to be quite honest, before I left all the bra- brain cells along the way, so to be quite honest. Um, yeah, but this culture was never covered in the depth and breadth that it is today. I mean, the, the, um, the um, depth of quality of coverage is much better than it ever has been. And uh, certainly, I think part of that is because no one really thought that, you know, youth cults used to come along, they'd have like two years, peak years, and then they'd have like another kind of uh, five years of uh, still still being around, but not being as vital. And then you'd have your hardcore adherents who'd wear wear the clothes for the for the rest of their lives. I don't. No one ever expected this this culture to to go on developing for thirty years. That was, and so it wasn't documented in the same way. Um, I don't think people realised that they. Uh, look back and see this as an incredibly significant uh, period in, in cultural history and and so when you when you're looking for photographs from from like the 80s 90s you often or or, or video you often find this pretty much next to nothing and what there is is terrible in terms of it's really really poor quality because the people People just weren't thinking that this was um, this was serious. Yeah, they could they were thinking it was serious, but they weren't thinking if it was in terms of a historic cultural movement um, because it, it, there was much more kind of naivety about it. Thing you mentioned earlier was about the uh, sort of uh, observing newness and that sort of being um, near the top of what you notice from a journalistic point of view. Um, in the course of this book, was there a particular party or event that really kind of ticked that box in, in, in terms of newness, you know, the sort of novelty factor? Well, there's obviously things that were absolutely new to me. Um, I don't think it's any more possible for someone to be the overall expert on this culture and know everything about it anymore. I think it's it's too large and, and too diverse for, for that and for someone to set themselves up as the ultimate gate, gatekeeper or oracle or, or, or um, for one person to do that is ab- is is now absolutely Im- impossible and and, uh, and 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 would be incredibly disingenuous for 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 me to pretend to be like like some kind of uh, super overall expert. I mean, for a lot of this stuff, things that have been going on for years, such as the psytrance scene in Israel, you know, this was my first experience of it. Um, so, I mean, 
I th- I, what struck me as 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 the absolute newest thing was uh, in terms of the most exciting was uh, what was happening in South Africa because um that um developed out of the specific uh social and political circumstances in South Africa after apartheid and that that was very interesting how the rise of electronic dance music came um, just after the fall of apartheid and uh, the the kind of new democratic South Africa developed at the same time as the South African electronic dance music scene and uh, there were obviously some connections between them and, and uh, they they shaped and it was shaped by the way South African society changed so that 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 for me was um the most interesting and inspiring thing but I think in general in terms of what made me feel good what um kind of warmed my heart in a way was all these people like all the time arguing about dance music and should it be this should it be that oh your music's too commercial um you should be more underground oh but no we want the music to go to the the greatest amount of people possible no you're just sellouts all this argument it just showed how 30 years after the acid house and uh, all that people still believe in this stuff so deeply that they they're so passionate about it because they've invested all this all this belief and commitment and time in it and it's something that they feel is theirs and they need to defend it they need to they need to defend their position they need to defend the faith in a way and this this made me feel yeah, very, very optimistic about about the culture in general because it was still questioning itself in that way that showed that it was still uh, a spirit of belief and 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 and, and passion in it, which I, I thought was wonderful. There's a particular example of maybe this like sort of uh, outpouring of passion I wanted to to run by. Um, came across this pretty eye-popping passage in the book um, where you're you're in conversation with uh, um, uh, someone at Kazantip who is a self-described foreign minister. Um, and uh, he got really annoyed at you when you um, when you described the event as a festival, because if, if my reading of it is correct, Kazantip describes itself as a, as a sort of sovereign state. Um, That's correct. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm going to just great nation, the great nation. (laughs) Just going to read this um, little bit. The next afternoon, I sat down for a while with Kazantip's foreign minister, a dark-eyed, intense young man in shorts and toe boots called Oleg Mishuris from Vinitsia in Ukraine, who insisted without any irony on referring to Marshunok as the president and Kazantip as the great nation throughout our conversation and got a bit irritated when I described it as a festival. Um, And then he sort of, yeah, goes on to uh, just... uh, goes on the sort of diatribe about um about how Kazantip is yeah this this as you say this great nation um, you don't you don't buy a ticket you buy a visa for entry and they they have a constitution laying out what what the Kazantip uh, um, subjects uh, should should believe and what rules they should obey and they have their their president and every uh, every evening at uh, at uh, sundown, he there would be a, a gong would be banged, and he he'd deliver this hol- homily to his his great nation, um, some kind of um, incomprehensible uh, uh, lecture. And but, I mean, the, the Kazantipi was kind of the uh, 
the Burning Man of the former Soviet Union. It was that it went on for for three or four weeks uh, originally in in Ukraine, but then it got into uh, got into problems when because of the uh, annexation of Crimea and had, had to had to move out of out of Ukraine. Um, but it was interesting to me as it, it, this was like taking the idea of. Um, a nightclub or a rave as as an autonomous zone to its absolute uh, logical conclusion to declare it an actually a separate state and to to declare you know normal rules do not apply here um we're we're, going, we're, we're even going to have a president and a constitution and uh, just to take it so far away from everyday reality and it's this it's it's uh, kind of hyper escapism isn't it mm. um and you no, know, they they were in character the whole time. Like this foreign minister, he he got he got very narky when I when I when I mentioned the word festival. I may have mentioned that word on purpose, knowing that I might get that reaction. But he he got he 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 believed it. He drank the Kool Aid. That guy. I mean, seriously, nice chap. Um, uh, very very helpful. Um, but it also highlighted um, the whole thing. Highlighted how this idea of uh, uh, clubbing or raving as an alternate reality when it comes up against real reality um, it is suddenly becomes I- I- unable to actually deal with that because um, well, this Kazantip um, claimed to be uh, its own republic but as soon as uh, um, you know, the, the Russian military came in, then it, the, 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 let's let's not talk about there is a republic anymore. Let's we'll just go somewhere else, like immediately. You know, it, it, that was it was interesting to me to see the limits of uh, what was possible. How far can you take this idea of of the temporary autonomous zone, uh, the the uh, the uh, kind of pirate encampment set up uh, to it to exist for. Uh, several days or or several weeks, and then to disappear again before it can be crushed by the state. Um, this was also what interested me about these uh, French technivals, which is um, uh, a scene that's been going on since the the mid nineties. Basically, outlaw raves around Europe. France is kind of this this the nexus of it all because it's a very big rural country a lot of space and uh, because of its specific the specific politics of France people can get away with certain things if they say they're doing it in the name of of liberation and um, and uh, um, social uh, dissidents and that 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 was also interesting for me because um, they had had this very genuine belief that their culture, their their version of rave culture, was generally uh, an out a, a, a dissident social movement in a political way, in a, um, not just um, that they wanted to get out of their heads and dance the bonkers techno for, for for four days in a row, but they were living a genuinely alternative lifestyle as it as it would be defined in in political terms showing an a, a, a social alternative to to uh, to bourgeois living and they generally genuinely believed that um so that 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 again for me was it's interesting when people take these things and 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 they, then they take them on and 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 take them on and and 
you know, the, the only problem for me was that I just couldn't stand the music, mate. <laughs> uh, 170 BPM for five days in a row is, yeah, it's, it's a harsh one. Sometimes things are interesting, even if you don't necessarily like the music. It's interesting you mentioned sort of talking about those two scenes. And by contrast, one of the themes of the book uh, is the increasing uh, commercial nature of of dance music and how that's kind of proliferated in certain cities. Um, to what extent are the kind of like eccentric scenes and characters that you, that you describe that we've just sort of been talking about under pressure or, or threat from this kind of um, you know this nascently uh, wealthy sort of like commercial uh, side of dance music. That's a really interesting question because I think a lot of people, uh, certainly on the on the ideological purist uh, uh, um, continuum of electronic dance music, see the uh, you know the the, the mass marketing and globalization of, of this culture as the enemy, as as evil, as exploitation. Um, as if they just woke up and noticed we live in a capitalist society. <laughs> Shock, horror. Um, uh, but on the other hand, they're still doing exactly what they want to do. Um, so, I mean, I think the lunatic fringes are always going to be there because the because there there are there, there are always going to be people people who want to do it in their own way. And one interesting example that in in uh, on my travels was. Um, these guys in Dubai, now, Dubai, absolutely hyper capitalist um, uh, construction. I mean, it, it, it's it's almost a surreal place. Uh, all about money. All about money. Um, and there's these guys there, and he, the guy was telling me, you know, I I I, I want to um, I want to play art music. I want to educate people. I was thinking you chose Dubai to do this. <laughs> you really wanted to put yourself up against it. Um, so, what I think, whatever the the, the situation in terms of, I mean, this, this, we could also argue about where where is the line between underground and mainstream anyway, um, and everyone everyone will put that line somewhere somewhere different. But but I think that there are always going to be people doing doing interesting things because there's always going to be interesting people who um, want to do things in their own way. I think this is how this this all spread in the first place anyway. In that you had people who, like this guy in in, in Dubai, he wanted to create a community of like minds around the thing that he believed in. Now he didn't want to do that because he wanted to uh, develop a, a series of franchises ar around it. He did it because he, he loved the music and wanted to, uh, to have a big group of friends all enjoying that music in the same time at the same place once a week and to create his own little uh, little uh, society of um, joy and abandon, nocturnal pleasure. Um, so there's always going to be people like that. And, and they are the people who are going to move this forward. It's patently clear that change doesn't come from the centre, change comes from the margins. Because the centre has no no reason to change, the centre is, is, doesn't need to. 
Change comes from the margin. It's, it's people like this, these mavericks and idealists. These are the people who are going to push it forward. It's not going to be the uh, big entertainment corporations who have now bought up a, a certain number of brand names of, of festivals or, or whatever, because that is not what they do. That's not what they're for. I think I've got one last question for you. I'm really interested in this um, idea of you revisiting uh, sort of, you know, the dance music scene, uh, you know, decades after Altered State. Uh, one of the passages in the book that caught my eye was um, a bit about um, IMS, the music conference in Ibiza, and mm -hmm. how it had been set up when, um, when one of the founders, I think, described it as their, described the sort of dance music industry as being in a lull. Um, and I sort of wonder whether this kind of bubble that you sort of allude to in the book that's growing will eventually burst or whether, it, you know, this is it now, this is just how it's going to be from now on. I don't know if this is uh, how it's going to be from now on. I mean, it's, it's, it's only a fool that predicts the future anyway, I, I think. But um, I think actually one of the EDM guys the uh, I interviewed in Las Vegas actually made a uh, young lad. Um, he playing at all these these uh, dreadful glitzy clubs in, in in Vegas but he made the the best point about this because there was a lot of talk about is this EDM bubble going to burst um, how long how long how much longer has it got are people going to get into something else instead well he made the point that dance music has had many names and many forms over over its history and that's going back further than uh, acid house and all that that's you know that we're going 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 back to uh, you know, the, the 1920s or, 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 or whenever, it's had so many different forms, so many different names, and it, it, it's, it's still continuing. Yes, there might be, um, it might contract economically in, in certain areas, um, as it has done done before, like the, uh, the end of the disco era, went back underground, re-emerged as house. Um, this could, yeah, of course this could happen again. Um, but the idea that people are going to stop dancing to music, well, that's frankly ridiculous, isn't it? Okay, that's it for this month's show. Thank you for listening. Join us at the end of March for another hour of documentaries, discussion, interviews, and lots of other things besides. Mm -hmm.